The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. The gang has a lot of fun this week wading through some of the backlog of listener feedback. Derek finds a great Luscombe price. Greg has a bunch of good ideas. Charlie fills us in on the ELSA, and Tim checks in from Dusseldorf. Plus, they get an update on the Brazil midair, review the recent GAO report on the FAA, and remember a fallen astronaut. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 28. We've got mail! From what I'm seeing and hearing, the consolidation has not gone smoothly. Criminalizing an accident like this is unprecedented. To watch them climb out of this airplane after getting their first airplane ride and the big smiles on their faces, I mean, it's satisfying on lots of different levels. (laughs) Welcome, folks. Welcome to episode number 28 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. And we're already having way too much fun this morning recording this on uh, Thursday morning. What's today? The 10th? May 10th? May 9th, May 10th, May, I think. May 10th, May yeah. 10th. And, uh, Cinco de Mayo plus five. I don't know, something's in the air. Anything could happen this morning. We'll see how it works out. Hanging Man, out, I'm hanging out, now. hanging out with me this morning hanging in the virtual out. hangar is uh, Dave Higdon. Dave talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Dave is an aviation photographer and a senior editor of Kit Planes Magazine and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Good morning, oh, Dave. We don't Good morning, everybody. Against, you know, that comment about things being in the air now has got me outside and looking up. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm in part of Kansas that's still standing after Friday's tornado in that's right. Kansas. So the idea of something in the air other than an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, on a serious note, that was quite a thing that happened down there. I, I used to live in earthquake country, and earthquakes didn't bother me all that much, but that tornado stuff is kind of frightening. Uh, just just about erase the place. Yeah. Uh, so it, you know, and and a lot of little airplane work going on back and forth out there, helping haul supplies and uh, doing aerial surveys, and uh, so you know, GA's uh, putting in its two cents worth yet again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remind me of the Greensburg uh, tornado later in this. Okay. Episode. And that other voice is, of course, Jeb Burnside. Jeb is talking to us from Springfield, Virginia, where they have fewer tornadoes. And uh, Jeb a is a... more hot air. Freer. A lot more hot air. And For, it's a wonder they don't have more tornadoes. <laughs> Jeb is a freelance aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Good morning, Jeb. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Dave. How's everybody <laughs> morning, doing? Jeb. So... <laughs> What's uh, what's going on? I am Jack Hodgson uh, up here in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I am a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. We, we've been wondering who you were. That's me. That's me. So, uh, yeah, tornado, Greensburg tornado. What's the deal there? What, Jeb, what was your question? Um, well, it, it, let me find the file. Here we go. Um, in that tornado, two uh, uh, members of our community, uh, two Luscombe pilots, actually, Ron Shank and his father Dwayne lost their homes and their business in oh, that man. tornado. Um, the uh, 
there's an email uh, uh, list of Luscom pilots out there on the internet uh, who have banded together to try to get some donations uh, together for the family uh, in support of their loss and try to help them rebuild. Um, this, uh, uh, and we'll put a, uh, some address information up on the website. Uh, you know, in, in the form of a disclaimer, I don't know uh, these individuals. I don't know uh, <coughs> um, uh, anything about their loss or uh, or the need that they may have. Um, and I will try to do some investigation on this. But uh, it, it is it does kind of bring bring home uh, reemphasize the. The, the catastrophic nature of that loss, uh, not just to the town, but uh, to what I consider some of our fellow brethren here. So, yeah, uh, sure not, thing. Absolutely, not all is uh, uh, as it should be. I yeah, think. we'll put we'll definitely put a link to uh, some uh, basic information about that on in the show notes, and uh, let people make their own judgment about uh, the situation, and uh, if necessary, or if they choose, make a donation of some sort or reach out. anybody Anybody that's interested can. Uh, uh, contact the United Way of the Plains here in Wichita, and they're coordinating a lot of relief work for the folks in, in Greensburg. Uh, you're basically looking at a town of about 1,500 people and about a mile and a half by a mile and a half, and uh, 96% or so of that mile and a half by a mile and a half has been leveled. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I mean, in the scheme of things, that's not that far from where you are. How far is it from Wichita? Uh, it's about 80 miles, uh-huh. uh, about 80, 85 miles. Uh, it's uh, most of the way to Dodge City, uh, and uh, it's right on the same big east-west U.S. highway, uh, U.S. 54, that uh, connects uh, Wichita to uh, southeast Kansas and runs all the way out uh, to liberal Kansas on the New Mexico border. Yeah. And uh, uh, or Oklahoma, it Liberal runs way out there. Is, and isn't I'm that sorry? kind of an oxymoron? Which one? <laughs> Liberal Kansas. Well, you know, if 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 you'd have, uh, replay any of Bob Dole's presidential campaign uh, speeches uh, from. Uh, uh, several years ago, you'd hear him use liberal, liberal, liberal in a not-too-friendly tone. I always wondered how the folks down there felt about uh-huh. having their name maligned that way. But well, he lost the election, so there you go. Well, there you go. Well, our hearts go out to all of the folks who were uh, hurt some way, somehow, by those tornadoes. And uh, and uh, we should probably move on to aviation subjects here this morning. Yeah, yep, um, moving right along. Let's see now. Uh, one loose end from last week's podcast. Uh, we were talking a bit about the uh, just-released uh, Oshkosh Air Venture Notum for this year, and uh, we managed to confuse ourselves and possibly some of our <laughs> listeners um, on the subject of uh, changes to rotorcraft landing spots. And uh, as I expected, we heard from our friends at EAA. Um, we heard from Fred Stadler by way of uh, Rick Reynolds, uh, and Fred clarifies that um, it's basically no change at all, except that what's happening over there is that if you've been to Air Venture, they have the big Kid Venture exhibit, which is the kids, you know, pavilion, if you will. It's a kid activity tent. Yeah, Uh, and it's been on the side of Pioneer Airport where the museum is, and this year they're moving it over to the side where the Pioneer Airport hangars are. Um, and so because they're moving Kid Venture over there and apparently making it bigger, they needed to reposition the helicopter spots, which were over there. So uh, I guess, you oh, know. So it's just the air tour helicopter. So apparently, airline. operationally, there's no change. It's just that they've moved the helicopter landing spots uh, to make room for Kid Venture. And it's still on Pioneer. 
but it's still apparently on Pioneer, just uh, yeah. on another another location on Pioneer. Um, in any event, read, and Rick? in any event, read the notum. Don't don't rely on us. Um, but that's sure. that's more detail about what that's all about. What's next? Um, uh, let's get the big serious story, kind of somewhat disturbing story out of the way first. Um, and that is the breaking news, I think, this morning or, or yesterday, uh, is that uh, Brazil has decided, has announced that they've decided that the U.S. pilots of that BizJet are at fault for the uh, midair that happened way back when. And, oh, uh, man. And, and this is just... Uh, Kind well, of unsurprising, uh, but nonetheless a, a, a downer. I guess so. Here's what they said, and I, I don't have all the text in front of me, but the, the key line that jumped out at me is that he said the reason that the U.S. pilots were at fault was because they should have noticed that the transponder was not working. And again, as I've said before, I'm no IFR pilot, but even if they had noticed, first of all, I'm not, well, I guess maybe they are responsible for noticing that kind of thing. But what happens if you... If you were in that situation, isn't that basically lost calm, and then you're supposed to just keep doing what you're doing? What's the procedure? Actually, it's not a lost calm it's not because a lost you, calm situation. you still got voice communication. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the first question that jumps out in my mind is that why is it more the responsibility of the pilots than it is of the air traffic controllers? Exactly. Who you know went what 55 minutes without seeing a return on their screen from that airplane, uh, and and didn't say anything. Yeah. There's a now, couple I, things. Go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just going to say here in the states, Jim. How long? How long would you and I go on an IFR f- uh, flight plan uh, without them seeing our transponder return before they were, you know, gently hitting reset About our transponder? About thirty seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Fifty-five um, minutes. Um, there's there's two or three things going on here in in, in recent days. One is the uh, NTSB um, earlier this week, late last week. <clears throat> excuse me, issued a report um, stating that um, basically there it was their opinion that the crew had somehow disabled, turned off, ignored, uh, did something to the TCAS. To disable TCAS. TCAS, of course, is uh, dependent upon transponders. Um, and uh, now we have the Brazil government uh, saying that the crew um, either disabled, turned off, or ignored signs that the transponder was not working and that the TCAS system, uh, either uh, um, from a related action or completely unrelated, had been disabled. Um, it is clear from what I know about the accident record, uh, as, at, least as, at least from the publicly available information, that Brazilian ATC A did not have a transponder. Um, uh, let, let, let put it another way: had a, had a, at best an intermittent transponder target, secondary uh, a radar target of the uh, the BizJet in for almost an hour leading up to the midair collision. It is also clear from the record that. Shortly after the collision occurred, that transponder, that secondary uh, target, returned to to Brazilian ATC screens. Um, that said, um, I guess two thoughts come to mind. One, there is no good reason, and it's just inexplicable to me why a professional flight crew would disable 
uh, their transponder while in the crew's environment um, without a specific request from ATC. It is it is just beyond my comprehension of why something like that. Uh, you just you, you can't even imagine how no. they would benefit from that. No, there's no, there's, no. there's no reason they're 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 flying well, actually out. to their detriment to turn e- it off. Exactly, that's that's exactly the point. It's it's as we see from the this episode, it has major consequences to turn off that transponder. The second that that transponder is what makes it possible for us to have the extra eyes and ears of air traffic. E- exactly. Exactly, the the TCAS uh, failure slash disablement is also of of a curiosity. Uh, the NTSB went to great lengths to discuss the lack of adequate um, uh, enunciation on the legacy uh, panel that TCAS had been disabled. Um, that said, again, there's no reason uh, uh, for TCAS to be disabled in that uh, in that environment. Um, but the bottom line, to me, uh, c- comes back to Brazilian ATC, and and folks, this would be the case if it was Canadian ATC, uh, um, American US ATC. ATC, whether it was uh, uh, Jack Center, uh, uh, Kansas City Center, it doesn't matter. This came an approach. Oh, yeah, they don't have radar. Yeah. Uh, this this legacy was in the in route airspace for upwards of 55 minutes. Uh, had an intermittent uh, secondary return uh, at best and, and an intermittent primary return, apparently. Um, there were no communications of any note either conducted or either completed or attempted between ATC and this legacy during that period of time. Um, it, it also is inexplicable to me if in fact the transponder had been turned off on the legacy or had somehow failed let's let's use the word failure here rather than switched off it's just inexplicable to me why ATC would not have noticed that and either a um, queried the the crew about the lack of a secondary transponder return secondary radar return or b uh, instituted lost communications Nordo procedures on that aircraft and shuffled that 737 out of its way. Yeah. The oh, whole Mike. thing, the whole thing, just does not add up. Still, and here we have the Brazilian government basically saying uh, that they are going to press criminal charges against the Legacy's crew. Uh, in 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 uh, the way this works out is uh, unknown right now, but the Legacy crew and and their employers and everybody else in the U.S. has said that they will return the legacy crew for prosecution to Brazil. Unbelievable. It yeah. Is. Well, so, uh, well, and the way I read the story, though, so what's the status actually now is that the Brazilian organization that now have made this finding have passed it now onto the judicial system, and the judicial system has not recently weighed in with how they plan to proceed. So That is my understanding also. The, the facts That's, of the finding, judicial or the criminal finding, have not yet been released or at least haven't crossed my desk. Yeah, so as bad as the situation is for these U.S. guys, I, I, I guess my hope an expectation is that now there'll be some maneuvering behind the scenes and somehow it'll kind of be forgiven. I don't know. That's not the right word, but forgiven is not the right word. Yeah, but um, but that they will not be required to go back there and and stand well, trial all by themselves, right? I would I would be surprised if they don't have to go back to be honest with really? you. Really? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Uh, the Brazilian th- this was uh, 
American media did not cover this <clears throat> this episode like the Brazilian media did, and uh, for weeks uh, there was uh, fervent anti-American fever in Brazil over this episode. Keep in mind, this is the worst domestic air crash in Brazilian history as a result of this mid-air collision. Uh, something like 150 people were on that 737, yeah. and they all died. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is something uh, um, very much in the public consciousness in Brazil. There's national pride involved. Uh, there's, uh, um, shall we say, anti-American fervor, and, and right now uh, Americans are not uh, well-loved around the world. Um, so this, this uh, I would not bet against this crew being forced to go back to Brazil to face these charges. How, how that will be disposed is another issue. Interesting. Well, this is, yeah. you know, this, let's, bears reminding folks and ourselves that criminalizing an accident like this is unprecedented. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's international agreements that cover this stuff, national agreements that cover this stuff. Accident investigations are supposed to be accident investigations. Uh, in much the same way that one accident investigation uh, uh, was what's the word I want here wrestled away from the appropriate authorities and taken over by the FBI some years ago uh, this investigation in Brazil has, has primarily been a law enforcement deal from the beginning and they seem to be depending on the uh, on, on the findings of the uh, professional investigators to backfill a way to criminalize this and yeah. uh, it shouldn't be this way it's never been this way uh, it will change the nature of how people feel like they should participate and respond in future crashes if they're worried that you know what was a mere accident what was a, a, a human failing on their part can be turned into criminal charges and jail time yeah. well we'll keep an eye on it and uh, and uh Follow well, up. One, yeah, one go ahead. final note slash thought here is, uh, you know, just looking, and our listeners don't really uh, um, see, you know, our internal notes on, on our various episodes, but uh, uh, the the text on our um, uh, our notes here says, should the pilots have noticed the inoperative transponder? Uh, in my experience, and certainly I'm not flying legacy class equipment, uh, but when on those occasions when ATC has called and said, oh, by the way, there's an issue with your transponder, I will immediately, of course, glance down at my transponder, and invariably it is winking at me. Yeah. Which is the only cockpit indication I have that the thing is working or not working. I'm glad you said this because I started to a while ago and stopped short. Uh, I've had two transponder uh, incidents uh, in the last few years. One was exactly like you described. They lost, they lost the target, but the little LED was winking away like always. The other was the complete opposite. The little LED stopped winking at me. Uh, I happened to notice it in a scan. Uh, oh, I got a cha- code change, uh-huh. and when they, when I changed the code, I noticed that I wasn't getting any little flashy. So, I checked in with the next frequency ask them if they still saw me yeah they did kind of scratched my head transponders working but there's no cockpit indication of its function right, right. are rfr pilots trained to include the transponder is as part of your regular scan no no I mean, it's not an ifr uh training uh a curriculum item by any stretch of the imagination uh it is you know 
I don't know, two, two or three things going on here. One, in, in, in the airspace in which I fly, um, you're not going, you're not leaving the ground without a working transponder. And if right. the transponder fails, you're, you're sure not, not coming home. in. Uh, you're not getting home that night. Um, there have been no, a number of occasions, and I, I will freely admit to um, kind of having a little bit of an issue um, with my transponder and, and my mode C encoder talking to each other. Uh, the encoders uh, uh, works. It's been overhauled yellow tag recently. Um, same for the transponder and the installation, but every now and then <clears throat> there's a hiccup that uh, my mode C drops out. ATC dutifully calls and notifies me. I recycle and eventually we get it all worked out. Um, half the time the problem is resolved when I fly to a different sector a different ATC sector or a different facility, uh, which tells me that the problem is not airborne, but it's ground-based. Uh -huh. It has, has yeah. a lot to do with the adjustment or, or the tolerances of the ground-based equipment. Um, I would uh, speculate, for lack of a better word, that that might be uh, part of the problem here in Brazil. Yeah. So we, we, we both know, we all know, that it's possible to have a transponder fail and not uh, and have a normal function indication in the cockpit. Exactly. So uh, you know, it, it's, it's and there's just enough wrong. radar. This is just wrong. This is just wrong. <clears throat> there's enough radar certainly around the areas in which I fly, and I would presume uh, at high altitude over Brazil also that uh, whether it's ATC radar or or military radar or um, somebody should garage door something. openers or something, you know that. Uh, could trigger transponders, and, and the pilot, the crew, would never really know whether or not their signal is being received by ATC. Yeah. Yes, there you go. Moving on. So, Jeb, before when we were chatting before we started recording, uh, you were mentioning something about the flight service stations. I think maybe you're about to get on a little rant here. What's going on? Well, I don't know enough about it to really rant. Um, but it's shut. never stopped you before. But it's never stopped me before. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, setting the stage, uh, back in 05, uh, Lockheed Martin, um, that, that big uh, conglomerate that, that makes everything from uh, F-22 Raptors to uh, um, uh, parts for C-130s and, and a variety of other things in between, um, successfully won the contract from the FAA to privatize the nation's uh, network of flight service stations. Uh, part and parcel of that um, proposal and the winning proposal on Lock on Lockmart's part was a consolidation of the flight service stations around the country. Uh, depending on how you count them, there are uh, were 58 uh, flight service stations that uh, Lockmart took over uh, and uh, <clears throat> is now in the process of consolidating. That consolidation began in earnest uh, a few weeks back, and um, from what I'm seeing and hearing, uh, the consolidation has not gone smoothly. Uh, here in the Washington area, and I, I uh, apologize to those who uh, are fortunate enough not to live in this area and try to fly in this area, um, having a flight plan uh, is a critical element of operations in the Washington, D.C. area because of the, uh, the ADAs and the uh, flight restricted zone that we talked about last week. The issue is uh, uh, compliance with uh, existing security-related rules. You must file a flight plan to enter or exit the ADAs. And if you cannot do that, you cannot fly. Um, in recent weeks, um, 
Lockhart has consolidated these flat service stations. They have put a lot of people in um, training um, as as the uh, as their new equipment is brought online. Some facilities are closed. Some telecom uh, facilities are inoperative or or outright disconnected. Um, basically, the, there is a lot of chaos out there, from what I can tell, and I've been subject to some of it relative to this consolidation. Um, AOPA has uh, expressed their uh, strong displeasure to Lockheed Martin. Uh, others are chiming in with this. Um, um, how this will all sort out, when it will all sort out, uh, is anybody's guess. Uh, but it's going to be ugly here for a few more weeks, apparently, before all of the people get trained, all of the pe all of the equipment comes online, and all of the phone lines are connected, reconnected, disconnected. Um, the problem <clears throat> here in the local area is lengthy wait times on the order of 20-30 minutes versus 20-30 seconds, say a month ago, uh, just to get a briefer on the phone. Jesus. Uh, yeah, it, and uh, we're talking uh, not just to get a briefer, of course, uh, to file a flight plan, um, but uh, part of the problem here is that, um, especially when considering the aid is and freeze issues, um, calling up the 1-800 weather brief number to file an ADIS VFR flight plan might uh, transfer you, <clears throat> and I'm not picking on DeRitter, Louisiana, but might transfer you to a flight station, a flight service station briefer in DeRitter who doesn't have clue one about how to file an ADIS VFR flight plan. <clears throat> All of which is well and good, except when you consider that um, failure to comply with the NOTAM, i.e. file that flight plan, can, could result in a significant enforcement action against you. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, have any sense of whether the delays and so forth are are result are, are just a transition thing, or is is are they not putting enough resources on it now with the yeah, new system? Yes, is the quick answer. Okay, uh, it is part of the consolidation, the con uh, uh, con uh, consolidation effort, um, and there does not appear to be enough resources uh, online. So you don't think it'll ever get back to it, or you think it's unlikely to get back to where it was before? No, no I, I think it will uh, get back to. They're, they're uh, contractually required to meet right. a performance standard, and right now they're not meeting it. I see. And does does, does the contract give them, uh, you know, sort of a grace period while they're transitioning, or are they supposed to hit that number from day one? There's, they were supposed to have hit, hit that number from day one, as I yeah. understand. Uh, but I'm not an expert on the content of that contract, and I suspect it's probably proprietary. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it's just it's just the flight service, uh, you know. The, the it's just taxpayer money and, and aviation safety and uh, and and the chance of losing your airplane or maybe going to jail. But hey, exactly. you know, it's, it's it's insignificant. Yeah. Oh well. So I don't know. Is there anything our, we or our listeners can do, or is this just kind of uh, well, shaking our heads? I would certainly be interested in hearing, personally and professionally, any horror stories from from uh, uh, locations outside the Washington area uh, relative to lengthy de delays or um, un unfamiliar. Or let me put it another way: briefers unfamiliar with local weather patterns or local airspace issues, etc. Please uh, feel free to drop an email to us via the Uncontrolled Airspace website. Um, flip side of which is, I would also be personally and professionally interested in um, the good side, the good stories, saying, "Hey, you know, out here in Minneapolis, we don't have any issues. Keep on rocking and rolling," or you know, Southern California or, or wherever. Um, it's it's hard to get 
uh, accurate information on some of this because Lockheed Martin hasn't been uh, all that forthcoming for obvious reasons. FAA says, well, it's Lockmark's problem. Um, but I, I keep hearing, you know, I keep hearing all kinds of uh, uh, anecdotal information. I'm trying to get a, lo a, a much um, more detailed picture of what's going on. How can we how can we trust giving the FAA more money in different ways if the buck we give them they keep passing? Well, there is an interesting uh, question, and uh, which uh, uh, might offer a segue into another item, and I don't even see it here on the list. But uh, yesterday, uh, as Avweb reported this morning, the uh, Government Accountability Office uh, put out um, uh, yet another of their um, detailed reports on uh, the FAA and its assimilation of technology. And to no one's great surprise, the uh, GIO, as it's uh, abbreviated, found that uh, the FAA doesn't have a clear plan for the development and implementation of the next generation air transportation system. Horror, surprise, shock, shock. Uh, Just shock. spread throughout the land. What a surprise! How can we uh, how can we all be simultaneously so enthusiastic and so cynical about aviation? This is what I want to know. We're not cynical I'll, about aviation, are we? We're not we're, cynical, we're cynical about aviation yeah. at all. No. We're not cynical about aviation, airplanes, or airplane people. We're cynical uh, about government. We are cynical about government. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, as much as uh, some of my friends like to think that uh, that uh, the conservatives have an exclusive. Uh, uh, disdain for we go. big government <clears throat> well it just ain't so uh, particularly for folks who have to interface with government so intimately as aviators have to uh, you know it, it, it's it's really hard to take seriously all this hue and cry about how uh, we've got to have a different funding system we got to have more money we got to have more ways to manage the money uh, and not hear anything about how they actually plan to spend it to transition to this next step. Uh, they've got a big committee that's been working on it for a long time. Uh, you know, they they keep working on a plan. We keep hearing the plans coming along. What's the plan? Yeah, uh, what were the details? I mean, the, the, the only the, thing uh, that we know for sure is that uh, it, they plan for ADSB. Mm -hmm. To be the backbone of the uh, air traffic system uh, by tw 2020, I believe yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, that to access NPRM coming out uh, later this year, we've already been hearing about it, uh, will basically require uh, ADSB equipment on board aircraft that want to access the uh, 30 class B airports or the airspace around them. Uh, and then it's going to expand from there. At the same time, they, as they make this transition, we hear they want to uh, start closing down or decommissioning about half of the uh, radar uh, sites around the country, a, a lot of them en route, uh, because they won't be needed. ADSB will provide the coverage. Uh, I think that's well and good. Uh, Wide area augmentation system obviously is, is is a big part of this because it provides the degree of accuracy needed to make this work. It's better accuracy than radar, for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but how they plan to make the transition through this and how they plan to use it and structure air traffic control and take advantage of it with airspace changes and, and, and all the stuff that's supposed to be uh, a tangible benefit from this, benefit that like shutting down radar sites and uh, 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 VOR sites around the country uh, will save a lot of money because there's a lot of maintenance required for those things. Uh, replacing old ones when they wear out is really expensive. Uh, we should be getting instrument approaches uh, far faster, we, we believe, at the uh, uh, airports where WAS now makes it possible to fly uh, a precision equivalent approach uh, without an ILS. Uh, what's the plan, guys? Don't tell us you want more money if, 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 we, if, if all you want to do is hand it off to a bunch of contractors to say, trust us to make it right. Yeah, ain't, ain't buying that. Ain't buying it. Been there, done that. Have the T-shirt, and uh, um, no, I don't. I don't trust y'all to make a, a, a decision on this when you come at me and want the money up front, and then we'll work out to say that we'll work out the details later. That's like buying a used car. So uh, once again, I'm sorry, Jeb. Go ahead. No, the, the other point I would like to make vis-a-vis -vis ADSB um, is that um, it's uniquely uh, suited to the levying and collection of user fees. Uh-huh. Uh, ADSB basically uh, is a, uh, a data link type of system that uh, uh, allows uh, an airborne aircraft to talk to other airborne aircraft as well as ground-based stations, uh, providing um, altitude, uh, lat-long position, velocity, uh, flight, flight plan information, ownership and address information, the whole thing. Um, from that data stream, and um, it just it just seems to me, and I've I've written about this in the past. Uh, this is a classic cart before the horse uh, uh, episode, as far as I'm concerned. Where, uh, at least in the current environment, the FAA is trying to put into place the funding mechanisms um, uh, for user fees and the and the bureaucracy. Uh, and the um, the rules to allow this to all occur, and somewhere down the road they'll figure out the technology uh, and require that it be installed on even uh, uh, the smallest uh, aircraft out there. Uh, the whole thing just sounds fishy to me. The FAA has done a a, um, a lousy job in my mind, as they are wont to do, of planning for and explaining all of this to not just the pilot population and the aircraft owner population, but even to Congress, as this report yesterday highlights. One final note, um, <laughs> and I'll shut up on this. That's topic. what he said the last time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, the GAO report yes issued yesterday was critical of something called the Joint Program Development Office. This that's is the, the committee I was talking right, about. Right. This is the this is an interagency organization established by Congress, quote, several years ago, unquote. Uh, the GAO notes that the J JPDO has not even gotten so far along this path as to have signed with its interagency, uh, with its uh, uh, various agencies in the federal government, a memorandum of understanding of what each agency's role is. And this is something that's been going on for two or three years. Uh, it's not like um, um, they were just put together last week and uh, haven't had their phones installed yet. Uh, <clears throat> the, the whole thing is of a piece and uh, um, I've just seen this too many times. Um, I, have, I have to call blowing snow on it. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm still. Yeah, there you go. I, uh, I'm still waiting for the fulfillment of the uh, 1984 Ronald Reagan process promise when they last consolidated the flight service station network uh, of equal or better service to the uh, system of almost 500 stations right. with experienced individual area experienced observers in all of them. I mean, guys made their careers there in these small town uh, uh, flight service stations, and they saved lives and they provided great service. So they're going to consolidate it down to the number that we have before this consolidation starts. We were promised repeatedly equal or better service. Uh, well, technologies allowed them to give more information in some cases, but I've never quite felt like, and this is no slam at the the flight service station specialists because they do the best they can for the numbers that they are with the technology they've got. But I don't think that uh, there's any way that we got the service equivalent that we had in the old days. No, there isn't. But that's just me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so, uh, rolling, rolling. let's see now. Uh, we've, as I mentioned last week, we've got a big backlog of, uh, of uh, mail and feedback from listeners, and uh, we're trying to work our way through it. I've got a bunch of them here. I've got about four that I want to try and cover today as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, let's <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, all right. Make my day. Yeah. Um, let's see now. Before, <laughs> before I read the first one, Jeb, I have a favor. Can you do a favor for me? Uh, while I'm reading, this first one, can you please look up uh, the airport identifier uh, KGAI, Golf Alpha India? Gaithersburg, Maryland. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I knew we kept you around here for some reason. Dun, 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 dun. We'll come back it's to that a, one. It, it, it's a neighborhood airport. Our first uh, first bit of uh, listener feedback is from Derek from St. Louis. Uh, Derek is uh, one of a bunch of listeners who uh, followed up uh, with us uh, on our whole frugal student pilot thing, uh, ways to manage the cost of uh, and finance and, the cost. Derek, that is so cool what you found. And, uh, just, cool. I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm loading up. I'm coming out. I want, Derek oh, writes. Yeah, I, 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 I want to do some recurrent out there. Yeah. Derek writes. Uh, he says, I am a student in St. Louis, and I have found an FBO over in Columbia. He said Columbia, but it must be Columbia, Illinois, uh, where they have a Luscom 8A for, that they rent for $45 an hour block time uh, and an instructor for $25. So the places are out there. You just have to dig a bit. Uh, so uh, that's good, a good digging, Derek. That's a yeah. good tip for uh, a place Absolutely. to go flying Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you know if you can learn if if you can fly an 8a man everything else afterwards is going to seem so absolutely you know so uh, boring mm-hmm. <laughs> this is where it comes to mind Next, uh, so uh, thank you, Derek, uh, from uh, St. Louis for that tip. That's good. Uh, and and uh, listeners out there, send us more of these. If you've got a, a, a great FBO that has a great rate on airplanes or a particular airplane, uh, let us know and we'll spread the word. Uh, unless you want to keep it a secret. You know, you don't want crowds and so forth. But uh, yeah. yeah. Next, um, we have from uh, Greg at KGAI, which apparently is what? Gaithersburg, you said. Gaithersburg, Maryland, yes. Uh, Greg from KGAI sent us a a fairly – he's a new private pilot, uh, just recently got uh, his ticket. And he sent us a a relatively long uh, email with a lot of interesting information about uh, his experience as a student pilot and the ways that he managed the cost uh, and some of his thoughts on other ways to manage the cost. Um, It's way too long for me to even summarize here on the podcast, but I posted Posted it in our blog, so you can read the entire uh, full text of Greg from KGAI's uh, uh, 
email uh, on our blog at uh, uncontrolledairspace.com slash fodder. So thank you to Greg from Gaithersburg. Next, this, yeah, go ahead. I was just wondering whether this is where we wanted to quickly touch on our attitudes about some FBOs. But uh, let's read the rest okay. of the letters. Well, I mean, I think maybe this is a good point to jump in with. There, we were we were we were talking uh, before we started today about the whole. You know, we've talked in the past about about how many, not all, but many FBOs don't really present a very welcoming face to the public, to the potential student pilot. And uh, I mean, do you have some more thoughts on this? Who brought this up, Jeb or Dave? Yeah, I brought it up. Uh, um, my, I don't know. I, I, I just. I've been in this uh, this industry, this community, uh, for more than 30 years now, and uh, uh, I've seen uh, small FBOs. I've seen seen large FBOs. I've seen uh, very good and professional FBOs in training facilities, uh, and I've seen, shall we say, less professional FBOs in training facilities. And uh, I uh, I just wonder uh, sometimes why. Uh, someone who's never done this before, who didn't grow up in aviation like I did, um, would even want to bother uh, sometimes because uh, they show up at a uh, what glorified Quonset hut um, in their uh, $45,000 car. Um, they uh, are asked to plop down some plastic and, and buy some books and, and a headset and, and all this kind of thing, and they climb into a, an airplane that's perhaps not... Uh, um, as valuable as the car they just climbed out of. It's noisy, it's hot, uh, it's uncomfortable, um, and it's a completely foreign experience uh, to them. Um, and that's changing to, to an extent, but it's still kind of the norm, I would say, rather than the exception. Uh, there are pockets of change out there. The LSA movement, for example, um, uh, Smaller, more modern uh, training training aircraft like the Diamond, like the Liberty, um, things of this sort do indeed uh, um, make this uh, uh, a trend that is changing. But um, for the most part, uh, I, I don't see a great deal of professionalism. I don't see a great deal of uh, um, comfort level uh, being exuded by a lot of FBOs and, and primary training facilities around the country uh, to, to attract people back into this community. Well, my, my empathy is with Greg. Uh, let me come back to this. Hang on. Hey, for some time now, it's occurred to me that one way we could finance this podcast is to charge a little fee every time someone's telephone rings. <laughs> it's going to stop in a second. Yeah, there okay. it stopped. All right, you got to put a quarter oh. in the jar. Sorry. So. Okay, doke. Uh, what what really struck me about uh, at this letter from from Greg was the, uh, you know, this is a guy who's not driving a forty five thousand dollar car, right. and uh, he doesn't have a piece of plastic he can lay down and 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 make a down payment. That from the numbers this uh, this gentleman posted on here, uh, you know, after he took the demo ride and he got the pitch, uh, figured it was going to cost six thousand or better to uh, get his license in the uh, flight school. The FBO wanted him to pay it up front in chunks of a 1000 or more. Uh, you know, he was paying 900 a month in rent. His car was worth about 1500 bucks. Uh, and, oh, yeah, a 1000 up front toward your flight training, and you'll need to buy these books from us, and you'll need to buy these heads this headset from us. 
and uh, uh, you know this this whiz wheel and a couple of other. You know, and pretty soon the guy's looking at nearly two grand to get out the door, and he hadn't taken a lesson yet. Right. Uh, well, good for good for Greg. He found a, a club to join. He found a, a way to do it more uh, inexpensively. Uh, the ways are out there, uh, but I, I got to go with Jeb. I see too many little flight schools where, you know, the the flight instructors are uh, kind of just passing through on their way to a, another flying job. And uh, the school set up to try to take maximum advantage of everybody that comes through the door. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of folks can't even begin to approach $115, $120 an hour for instruction in a new Skyhawk uh, or a new Warrior. Uh, and in another 45 bucks an hour for a flight instructor on top of that. But as uh, the young man from St. Louis uh, pointed out, he, he found a place where at 45 bucks an hour for a Luscom, 25 bucks an hour for uh, an instructor. Uh, it may not as be as sexy as a new 172, but the, 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 the pilot's license he gets out of learning to fly that airplane will work for him just as well as it would have if he'd learned in a 172. Yeah. I think I'd like to hear from well us as we travel around you know the country, but also from our listeners about FBOs that do it right. Um, you know, if you know if you're familiar with an FBO that has a very welcoming uh, uh, nature, and and uh, you know we'd like to hear about that because I think that would be a good example for other FBOs, and uh, it would kind of demonstrate that it can be done right. And uh, um, you know, let's let's see if we can move this forward too. That that might be a, a good thing for us to to work yeah, on. Absolutely, I, and and uh, I, I am sometimes accused of being a little bit too negative about uh, the prospects for this industry and, and participants in it, but. Uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, good elements uh, in, in surrounding and, and intrinsic to this community and this industry, or I wouldn't be involved in it. Yeah. Well, uh, Derek and Greg both found that they yeah. can find cheaper exactly. ways, uh, you know, more cost-effective ways to do it. Uh, folks, we need those ways to exist, and we need a lot more of them. But mostly we need an attitude that, that you know, makes the folks feel like they're not interfering with your day when they show up and want to talk about learning to fly. Right. Uh, our pilot population is shrinking. You know, if we want to keep airports open and airspace available and airplanes around that we can afford, uh, we need to be able to spread this out over a larger population. And, and right now, the population's going in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. Moving on. Um, yeah, one, one uh, I'm sorry. One point. Greg, yep. <laughs> um, uh, sorry to cut you off. Like I long ago gave up having any control yeah, over the pacing yeah, of this podcast. Okay. So, uh, Probably a wise decision. Yeah. Um, Greg also submits uh, in his lengthy email, and very, very uh, good email, and we're very appreciative of his feedback, uh, what he calls tips for prospective student pilots, uh, wherein he, he's got six different uh, well-written, uh, well-considered points. Uh, and I would encourage anyone to anyone interested in this, of course, to, to go to uncontrolledairspace.com slash fodder and, and check out uh, Greg's email and his tips. The most uh, uh, cogent one of, of, of them I see here is don't pay retail for anything uh, in, in the sort of uh, uh, private pilot uh, training materials. Uh, uh, no wonder my mother-in-law likes you. Yeah, as he correctly points out, says all kinds of, of training materials show up on eBay from time to time. Uh, he mentions the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge retailing for $35 
but shows up used on Borders.com for $3.69 as I write. Even better, guys, it's online at the FAA website for free. There you go. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of ways to skin this cat, and uh, uh, we might uh, uh, consider putting together a podcast here in the future just of, of tips that uh, uh, can help student pilots save some money. Yeah. Well, we flogged this horse before, too. We have. Yeah. We have. Yeah. But it's and a good we'll one. continue to, to flog it. It's a good but one to flog because it's... It, a good it's, one because it's, it's, it's really the future of this community. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can I move on? Yeah. Moving right along. Moving right along. <laughs> Charlie Becker. Charlie Becker is the uh, Charlie Becker is the director uh, at of uh, EAA Aviation Services and a friend and listener of the podcast. He uh, has written to us a number of times over the past uh, in in the recent past. And th- this is the price I pay for getting behind on reading all this email. Um, he was at Sun and Fun, and we could have said hello. And uh, I didn't realize he was going to be down there. And I apologize He's for not to make a living. I don't understand. Not track him down down there, but. Uh, um, and Charlie sent us some emails in the past that uh, we've we've uh, talked about here on the podcast. Um, he sent us an email uh, a couple weeks, well, probably more like a month ago, uh, when we were talking about reading the notum prior to going to Sun and Fun. Um, and he he reiterated our comments about making sure you read and have on board the uh, the notum. He actually sent us an interesting piece of audio that I'm going to save for a future podcast. But he sent a piece of audio which is of uh, the communications between a pilot trying to get into Oshkosh during air and the tower Last and year. Uh, yeah, yeah and, i think i've heard this one before. and the uh, the sort of <laughs> brainlessness yeah unpreparedness and sort of yeah but uh, we'll, we'll hold that one for later on as we get a little closer to oshkosh as an object lesson on uh, on how not to go to how not to do it yeah but oh, he, one of my favorites was hearing a guy key up and try to check in and it goes my god you all got a lot of airplanes here today <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was three days before the show. It was the first day, you know, three days before the show. I think he thought that he was going to be coming in all alone that far ahead of the show. He's like, oops. <laughs> no, oops. that's not the way it works. But uh, on a slightly different subject, uh, Charlie sent us another uh, audio comment uh, in the last few days, following up on something that uh, we, or I think Dave, talked about last week on the podcast. So I'm going to play this, and hopefully you, you guys will be able to hear it as I play it. Here we go. <laughs> hopefully. Hey, Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. This is Charlie Becker from uh, EAA. I've emailed you a couple of times. Yeah, I just listened to the last one, number 26, and wanted to give you some feedback on why the ELSA kits hasn't really uh, taken off much to date. From my view of the world, there's three main reasons. One is that um, the FAA guidance requires that the kit manufacturer on those ELSA kits will be listed as the manufacturer on the data plate. And therefore, there's at least a perception from the manufacturers that there'd be increase in product liability if they offer something as an ELSA kit. Uh, The second big thing is by having the kit, they're introducing an unknown into their construction process. You know, maybe that's 20% of the work, maybe it's 10% of the work. But if they're going to be listed as the manufacturer, they'd just soon be the manufacturer of the whole aircraft and stand behind their work as opposed to with a kit, you're introducing this unknown, but yet you're still on the hook as a manufacturer. And then the third reason I think that it hasn't taken off is that human nature is that if the builder or the ultimate guy who buys this thing is going to have to do 20% of the work, of course, they're going to be looking for like a 40% discount off the price. And for many of the manufacturers, <laughs> it's probably 
as expensive or only slightly less expensive to offer it in a kit form. So, once again, enjoyed, the, enjoyed all the podcasts so far, especially the last one was a good one. And uh, if you ever want to talk about this issue, give me a call, 920. Yeah, we're going to lie. We're, we're going to broadcast his telephone number here. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. That's great. Yes, uh, Dave, you want to kind of expand on this or give us the background? or? Well, you know, we, uh, the uh, the episode we were talking, uh, Charlie was talking about, I uh, was talking about the uh, uh, large number of uh, special LSAs that have been approved at, under the consensus standards in the last couple of years. It's up around 50 now, maybe a little more than that now. But there had been this real dearth in uh, ELSA. That's where uh, the airplane can be sold uh, and assembled by the owner. Uh, for less than 51% of the work is required under experimental amateur built and then have all the benefits of being able to fly it uh, on a sport pilot's license or sport pilot's uh, certificate. And uh, we knew that part of it was the, uh, the the cost factor, that it's not as cheap as, as, as people might expect. And so pricing... Uh, an ELSA was going to put it close enough to the fully assembled one that a lot of companies were looking at it as it's really not going to be worth it in the long run. Uh, I had not thought about the uh, the fact that the, uh, man- the manufacturer of the components in the uh, assembly kit would be listed as a manufacturer. That's 180 degrees out with the current experimental amateur built rule right. where the builder is listed as the manufacturer. So uh, it all makes good sense to me. Uh, it, it is kind of a shame, and maybe that's another area where a little fine-tuning uh, uh, of the consensus standard is warranted. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe not. If these things sell as well as they appear to be, uh, been uh, quite over a 1,000 of them sold in the last two years, uh, ready to fly, then uh, maybe... It's it's just one of those like the recreational pilot's license. It was a good idea, but yeah, not really yeah. cost effective. Well, you know, down the road, uh, I'm not right now in the market, um, but down the road, an ELS, an ELSA, is something in which I might be very interested. Uh, I've, I've got a few tools. I've got a little bit of talent, but more importantly, I have uh, some friends who who have much more talent than I do, and uh, putting something like that together and and uh, um, uh, being able to fly it uh, is casually. My, my airplane is not a um, Saturday afternoon uh, uh, go shoot uh, uh, landings kind of airplane. It's more of a cross country type of airplane. But um, um, that, that kind of uh, uh, aircraft would definitely appeal to me. And the concept of, of buying a kit and putting it together and, and playing with it as a hobby and, and uh, as, a, as an avocation. Uh, uh, does strongly appeal. So, you know, I think there is a market for that. It's unfortunate the uh, regulatory structure uh, makes it un- unappetizing sometimes to uh, uh, potential manufacturers, but maybe we can work around that. Yeah. Well, I, you look to, looking at a period here where uh, uh, registration applications for uh, new home builds uh, seems to be on the decline, too. So, uh, you know, there just might not be the market for the ELSAs that uh, that everyone 
thought there would be back when this was being these standards were being worked on uh, two and a half, three, four years ago. So times change. Yeah, I have to admit, I find it kind of appealing as well. I, uh, you know, in in my early days of of flying, um, I very quickly became an EAA member, but more for the camaraderie of other pilots, and not because I considered myself a potential builder. As a matter of fact, back in those early days, I kind of compared myself. There's a great old Groucho Marx line that I'll kind of modify here, which is that I didn't want to be the pilot of any plane that would have me as its builder. <laughs> and uh, but the more I hung out with uh, with builders over the years, the more I realized that although it takes concentration and skill and kind of a serious attitude um it, it's something that a person like myself could do and uh, absolutely is, is, um, is a, to me one of the keys that it takes to build an airplane yeah so um the more opportunities there are for this kind of thing the the more appealing it is for me and and maybe for other people you know if you're out there and you thought oh, i don't want to I, I don't i couldn't build an airplane my goodness I, I i would give it some second thoughts you know it's it's not as unapproachable as you think and there's so many different flavors of kits and different levels of expertise required and uh, you ought to look into it. Check out well, some of some of them. Some of the manufacturers, like uh, uh, and I've picked on Randy before, our, uh, Rand's aircraft out in Hayes, Kansas. Uh, they offer uh, kits that, in the non-quick build form, mm-hmm. uh, are pretty straightforward and simple. All the major work's done. You don't have to weld or bend or drill much of anything. Uh, it's a matter of following the instructions and putting, you know, tab A into slot B with screw C or rivet D and doing it, you know, one section at a time, building it up logically until it's a, a finished bird. And when you start talking about assembly times for non-quick build kits of 300, 400, 500 hours, uh you know, you're you're talking a few months worth of weekends and 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 after work evenings, uh, a couple of nights a week, to have an airplane that'll carry two people at uh, over 100 miles an hour for several hundred miles, and and let you do it for, oh, gee, many, 40, 50 grand, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes less, yeah. sometimes less for some of these designs. Uh, it's not hard to see where an ELSA would be uh, tough to price. And, and and build profitably. So, uh, but the building opportunities are so much more user friendly than back when what we described as an experimental aircraft kit mm-hmm. was actually a uh, set of blueprints and a box of raw materials mm-hmm. from which you had to drill, bend, shape, craft, weld, fasten, and assemble everything that went into the finished airplane, except maybe carve the prop. <laughs> yeah. One more piece of email before we try and wrap this thing up. Uh, 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 quite some time ago, well, it seems like quite some time ago, a while back, uh, we invited uh, listeners from around the world uh, to uh, check in. And uh, we got an email from Tim from Dusseldorf, Germany. And uh, Tim sent us uh, an email. I'm going to read a little bit of it, but the full text of this one is on the blog as well. Tim writes, uh, hi, my name's Tim. I'm 30 years old. I'm from Germany, and I've been a private pilot for about four years now. He says, since I'm living in Dusseldorf, Germany... I'm probably going to call EDDL, Dusseldorf International Airport, my new home airport soon. But until now, I've done most of my flying out of, okay, here we go, Marl... Uh, he actually gave me a little pronunciation guide here. I'll try to do that, but I'm still going to mess it up. Marl Lomala uh, from... Uh, 
from uh, in uh, in where is it? He says, uh, which is a rather small airport, which has been struggling. See, now here's a familiar story, huh? He says, uh, which is a rather small airport, which has been struggling with some closure issues for many, many years since it's been owned by the county. Fortunately, he writes, six months ago, it was bought by a consortium of several pilots and companies using uh, EDLM. And right. not only are they going to keep the lights on, they want to expand the runway. And he goes on to talk. Too cool. Yeah, he goes on to talk a, lot, a bit about some of the airplanes that are available at the airport and at his FBO. Uh, he, fin- he closes by saying, by the way, I do much of my flying in the United States. He says, I hold an independent U.S. private pilot license and a converted PPL, and I am in the process of getting my uh, ME ticket. Multi-engine. Uh, multi-engine, thank you. Ticket uh, this year. Most of the time I fly out of KCRQ near San Diego, so I'm familiar with both the U.S. and the Germ- German-slash-European system. He's, from- uh, so he's also familiar with what it costs to fly over there and uh, and, and pay for their air traffic control network. Yeah. So. Which is one reason he probably does a lot of his flying in the U.S. That's yeah. why he's earning his multi-engine ticket here in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. why he probably got his PPL in the U.S. and then converted to Germany mm-hmm. as opposed to the other way around. But it is good to hear that his uh, little airport back there is uh, is uh, is holding its own and uh, it's good. maybe making some steps forward. What's it, you know? Again, we're running really long here, but any any thoughts on the whole subject of taking your U.S. pilot's license and flying in other countries? <laughs> Not Brazil necessarily, but you know, <laughs> are, are there issues uh, with flying in Canada, for example? Uh, uh, I, I've I've flown to Canada and back before and survived the trip. Uh, the most harrowing part of it was clearing U.S. customs on the way back. Yeah. Um, and that was that was before 9/11. Um, I, I don't have any insights whatsoever. Uh, I spent uh, a few weeks in Japan several years ago on business, but I, I had it in the back of my mind to uh, uh, at least ask a few questions about the idea of uh, a personal aviation in Japan, with the idea of maybe getting at least a right seat ride, but uh, 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 never got past the the uh, uh, germination of thoughts phase. Um, I, I really uh, have to beg uh, uh, ignorance on, on a lot of uh, uh, a lot of that. Uh, I know certain countries are much more uh, amenable. Australia comes to mind. New Zealand comes to mind. Although even there, um, the the level of regulation and the uh, uh, resulting costs uh, to, to of private aviation in those countries is much higher than here in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I. Uh, I made two international trips in the uh, Comanche we used to own. Uh, I've been into Canada in private aircraft, but it wasn't. Uh, I, I, I was the assistant pilot on that trip, uh, but uh, f- flew Air Comanche from Key West to uh, Grand Cayman Island back in '99, uh, middle of the year, with the Cayman Caravan. And uh, you know the amount of paperwork involved. Uh, was the biggest issue, and the caravan folks uh, did a wonderful job of taking care of that for all the participants. But the caravan, uh, the Cayman Island trip, was uh, for uh, my wife Annie and me a a kind of a warm-up to a trip that we were already planning to make later that year to uh, uh, Cancun in Mexico. And uh, we were meeting uh, uh, my good friend Dan Johnson had organized a Millennium New Year's Eve party, and we were going to be part of a group of about 25 people. We brought along my best friend Tom, who was living in Dallas at the time, and uh, 
we entered Mexico at uh, Matamoros and uh, flew around the Bay of Campeche, uh, spent a day and a half going down, uh, went around through Veracruz uh, up to uh, uh, Campeche, refueled, and across the Yucatan to Cancun, and one of the most thrilling feelings I've ever had piloting an aircraft was being told that I was number two behind the Aeromexico 737 and please keep my speed up because there was an American 727 closing in behind me. Uh, turn, turn tight over the beach and, uh, and, and you have plenty of space, uh, Senior Capitan. And, uh, uh, but the American pilot's license and my instrument rating were uh, considered valid down there. Uh, I had to show all my paperwork on entering the country, fill out a lot of forms, uh, pay a lot of fees at every stop. There was a form and a fee uh, multiple times. Uh, the, the, the folks were lovely. Uh, the airspace rules were a little different. Uh, you needed to have the charts. You needed to understand things like on VFR, you don't turn on your transponder. Nobody's talking to you versus squawking 1200 here in the States. Uh, made me uh, uncomfortable enough that I only f flew one leg VFR. Yeah. Uh, upon learning that in the VFR environment, uh, every other leg I flew was on an IFR flight plan. That was the only way that I could turn on the transponder, get a code, and have anybody talk to yeah. me. Uh, language was a little bit of an issue, but uh, uh, the biggest issue was talking to uh, a couple of the sector controllers who had their microphones on power boost and seem to be talking inside concrete structures. <laughs> uh, so the the volume and the reverberation were amazing. Yeah. I had forgotten about the Cayman Caravan. I did participate in that one year and that was uh, a very delightful uh, uh, flight, uh, uh, vacation trip. Uh, oh, I, it's I, wonderful. I, yeah, I tagged along with Mike Bush of, of AvWeb and, and SavvyAviator.com uh, fame and uh, uh, in his uh, Turbo 310 and kind of made the whole thing painless. Uh, I was kind of along for the ride and uh, just had a wonderful time and, and uh, if I haven't done so recently I'd like to publicly thank Mike and uh, uh, the organizers of the Cayman Caravan for that. Uh, um, so it's it's very interesting to look down upon uh, Cuba from uh, ten or twelve thousand oh, feet. Oh, it really is. Uh, be talking with Cuban controllers who uh, who do were a very wonderful. good job. Their English is impeccable. Um, uh, it was it was totally a no brainer. Uh, yeah. to go down there and back. And uh, it's just a little tiny when you're in a single engine airplane. Yeah. And, and, you know, you get farther than gliding distance away from land, which, you know, once you leave Cuba, you're. You're uh, uh, outside gliding distance to anything dry for uh, better than an hour in in, in our case, and uh, you get real attentive to every little sound <laughs> and vibration in the airplane. But uh, you know the, the the airplane doesn't know that it's not over land, so no, only the pilot. Only the pilot. See, I and had a little bit of that. I had a little bit of that when I was flying with Jeb over and into the clouds on the way back from Florida. It's like yeah, me, me VFR only pilot. You know, it's kind of like I can't see the ground. I can't see the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No horizon. Which way's up? Yeah, and punching through those. Well, that's a whole other podcast subject here. But and, and, uh, I'm, and I'm in the left seat snoring. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, yeah, thank I know. You. I've I've had to share PIC chores with Jeb on enough occasions that I know that uh, when he starts to snore, I just reach over and unplug 
unplug the mic jack. <laughs> Give him some private time. Thank you to all of our listeners for uh, for this uh, feedback. It's really great. We do love it. And uh, uh, we've got a handful more from the past that we're going to catch up on over the next couple of podcasts. But please uh, keep sending in the new stuff because uh, we, love, we love getting it and we love hearing from you. Uh, you can send us an uh, email to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com or go to the uncontrolledairspace.com website where you'll get the current telephone number for the listener line to leave us an audio comment. Thank you very much. Um, we got to wrap this thing up. Boy, we're running long again. A couple of small items here. Um, EAA in the past week uh, concluded their uh, their big survey thing to find out what the greatest aviation movie of all time is. And, okay, here we go. They decided that it was Top Gun, the, uh, the Tom Cruise movie, Top Gun. Now, so we were talking about this a little bit offline. Uh, <laughs> see, my view is... Say it ain't so, Joe. Yeah, say it okay. ain't so. A lot of great movies on the list. And, and Top Gun's a good movie. I enjoy Top Gun. Um, but I wouldn't characterize it personally as the greatest uh, aviation movie of all time. I, I, you know, I guess it's the most popular aviation movie of all time. Well, that, that, I'm going to say that's the go. case here. This is straightforward democracy in action. Yeah. And... Uh, 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 Top Gun got the most votes yeah. from the uh, EAA folks that uh, took the time to uh, cast a vote. I mean, I yeah. certainly enjoy list watching. I'll watch Top Gun, you know, from time to time again. Oh, but, I, sure. I have the DVD. But I, but what I do, here's what I do, is I'll fast forward through to, I'll watch the flying sequences <laughs> and the Meg Ryan sequences. That's that's Top Gun, the part of Top Gun that I enjoy. Uh, so. uh, the Kelly McGillis sequences are not uh, um, uh, distasteful. Well, there you go. See, that's the difference between I'm a, I'm a Meg Ryan kind of guy, oh, I, I guess. I am, so. That was, and that was her first big movie. That was her big breakout thing, you know? Or, yeah, you know, yeah. She said, she said, take me home, and oh, I can't remember the exact line. But anyways, yeah, yeah. so they decided Top Gun was the big movie. That's going to be one of their featured movies this summer at Air Venture. And uh, I don't know, you think they'll get Tom Cruise to come in? And out? They were, they've been talking about getting some big celeb to introduce it uh, that night. And uh, I wonder who Top Gun movie-ish they might get to do that. But uh, we'll hear more about that. Well, as hopefully it'll on. be Meg Ryan. Hey. Well, I, think got, I think they've got Jim Lovell, who's going to... Uh, introduce Apollo 13 yeah yeah it's going to be a great it's going to be a great thing those movies we've talked about in the past what else let's see now so uh we've got a couple of uh, uh i think dave was the one who wanted to talk about uh, young eagles yeah well there's a couple of things going on here with young eagles uh first off uh, our, our old friend cannonball dave who's written to us in the past responded to uh, my invitation to uh, send us information on on fly-ins and and, and aviation events in 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 your uh, hometown area and so he uh, dropped a note to us to say that uh, Marin I- merritt island airport down in florida that's uh Kilo Charlie Oscar India uh, is having a Young Eagles Day on May 19th. So if you're uh, uh, if you've got the time to give and some lift to give, get a hold of the EAA folks down there, the folks at Merritt Island Airport, and uh, talk to them about uh, participating in Young Eagles Day. Help introduce a kid to. Uh, to the uh, world of aviation, and if you can't make May 19th at Merritt Island, there's uh, International Young Eagles Day coming up on June 8th, and uh, that's the EAA, the Experimental Aircraft Association's big effort to, uh, well, it started out 15 years ago. The goal was to fly one million youngsters before the uh, anniversary of the Wright Brothers, the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers' first flight. And they achieved that goal and, and, and laudably continued the program 
beyond its initial goal of one million kids. They're up to around 1.3 million. Wow. Uh, you can find out more information about it at uh, uh, youngeagles.org. Uh, they love having pilots participate. Uh, there's a little bit of paperwork that you need to fill out. You'll want to talk to them ahead of time. But June 8th, all around the United States and the world, International Young Eagles Day, it's your chance to help feed the aviation pipeline by inspiring a youngster to learn to fly. Absolutely. And, and it's, the program has resulted in a lot of kids taking up aviation. Some of them have become professional pilots, uh, uh, flight instructors, and so forth. So this is a program that works. Uh, this is a program that contributes to aviation uh, and contributes to the development of the youngsters in our, in our country. So yeah. have at it. I've been involved with a bunch of these uh, uh, Young Eagle, you know, rallies, if you will, uh, where a chapter will put together like a Saturday morning and invite a bunch of kids to come out and, and get their first ride. And and it's just incredibly satisfying. It's just so much fun to watch these oh, kids really and, and how much how, how excited they are by this prospect, both before and after the flight. I mean, to, to watch them taxi up and, and climb out of this airplane after getting their first airplane ride and the big smiles on their faces. And, uh, you know, you, you just I mean, it's satisfying on lots of different levels, you know, it, you You've done this cool thing for a kid, and and you've kind of planted a seed for a future pilot, and uh, it's a great program. We'll put on the website uh, in the show notes a link to uh, both uh, information about International Young Eagles Day, and also we'll dig up the information about that uh, chapter, Merritt Island EA chapter, uh, so that you can go directly to that information as well. One additional slash final thought here. Um, Any given weekend, uh, there is an EAA chapter near you that is sponsoring some kind of a fly-in event. It might be three airplanes uh, uh, sitting around uh, the front of a hangar uh, um, chewing the fat, as we sometimes do on this podcast. But um, there is usually, and I would say always perhaps, a uh, an EAA-sponsored, a EAA chapter-sponsored event near you. If you're looking for something to do with the airplane sometime, um, just a little bit of surfing, a little bit of mouse clicking, uh, we'll uncover uh, some some very interesting times and and uh, some very interesting people and some very interesting airplanes uh, near you. Uh, only takes a little bit of avgas, folks. So uh, uh, now's a good time of the year to be flying. Yep. If you and, got a ticket, get out and use it. If you don't got a ticket and want one, you know, hang with us. Uh, look for places where you can do it on a budget. Uh, come on in. The water's good, as the man likes to say. Yeah. <laughs> And last but not least, uh, one of you guys want to talk about the uh, AOPA fly-in that's coming up? Uh, was that on the list? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will. Uh, the, uh, I, I can do that. Okay, uh, Dave, uh, go ahead. A- a- annual Open House, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, they're flying at their home field, Kilo, Foxtrot Delta Kilo, Frederick, Maryland, June 2nd. Uh, it's a day full of uh, kicking tires and new airplanes, looking at new avionics, safety workshops and programs. They're right there on the field. Tours, the AOPA headquarters uh, are, are our best uh, uh, aviation CEO, Bud Phil Boyer, will be there uh, talking up the issues of the day, uh, meeting members. Uh, you can meet a lot of the AOPA staff that are there to help you out. Uh, it's worth a drop-in. Uh, that's June 2nd at Frederick, Maryland. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a good and event. And you can here find in information on that at AOPA's website. That's both a drive-in and fly-in event. Um, and uh, I... I've, been up there in the past. It's it's a good little uh, um, uh, 
gathering uh, of the AOPA faithful, which all of us are, uh, definitely worth the while, uh, worth your time if you have the uh, means to get there. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, okay. Uh, unless there's anything pressing that we don't want to hold off till next time, and I don't hear any takers. Uh, yeah, I got one. Okay, Uh-oh. one little. Okay. Well, uh, gentlemen, I met a few years ago at a Bombardier Air Safety Stand Down. Uh, he was a hero of mine when I was a kid. Uh, meeting him in person was, uh, was was really a treat, uh, and got to spend about three days hanging around, shooting the breeze, drinking scotch with him. Uh, Wally Shira, mm-hmm. one of the original. Uh, Mercury 7 program astronauts uh, died last week Mm -hmm. and uh, sorry to see him go he was 84 he was a hell of a nice guy Uh, decorated combat veteran from uh, from Korea Uh, the only astronaut to fly in uh, the Mercury Gemini in Apollo programs Mm -hmm. Uh, he commanded the first uh, Gemini flight that rendezvoused with another spacecraft in, in, in flight. Uh, he flew as commander of the first manned Apollo mission, uh, had a hell of a lot of time in space, retired as a Navy captain, uh, uh, went on and became a space commentator with uh, uh, working for uh, CBS and wa- working with Walter Cronkite, talking about uh, other space uh, events like the Apollo 13 uh, uh, debacle. And uh, just truly a wonderful human being, great fun to be around. Uh, we're sorry to hear of his passing, and our thoughts go out to his family. Uh, what Dave said. Here, here. Well, thanks, guys. As always, a lot of fun. I appreciate uh, you're getting together uh, every Thursday morning, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Whether we have time for it or not. Yeah, that's right. Well, you, it's, know? <laughs> you know, and if we run off at the mouth, this is all your fault. You it's, put together a good idea. Ah, uh, well, okay. Thanks. Uh, you want to learn more about Jeb and his work? You can go to uh, one of his many websites. He has nearly as many websites as I do these days. Uh, Jeb is... I know. JebBurnside.com, uh, also AviationSafetyMagazine.com, and AvWeb.com. And, and someday he'll learn to blog. No, no, he's doing good these days. He's doing good these days? He is, yeah. He's been putting okay. putting stuff, some stuff up there. Yeah, he's doing good. Uh, Dave, thanks to you. We learn more about Dave and his work at DaveHigdon.com. Uh, and learn more about me and my work at JackHodgson.com. And, of course, you can uh, visit with all of us at the UncontrolledAirspace.com website. So I'm always not going to take this abuse much longer. Hey, <laughs> hey, the abuse will continue until morale improves. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. And we'll talk to you all again next time. Bye-bye. Hasta la vista. your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Ah!